As it was announced at the beginning of the program, today Radio Irawa's English edition is starting earlier and our guest is Mr. Estran Stevenson, who is former Scotland representative in the European Parliament between 1999 and 2014, author and international lecturer on the Middle East and human rights. Mr. Stevenson is also the coordinator of the Campaign for Iran Change, CIC. I recorded my conversation with Mr. Stevenson on Tuesday to hear about his new book called Dictatorship and Revolution, Iran, a Contemporary History, and talked about the developments that affect Iran. Let's listen to it now. Welcome, Mr. Stevenson. It's been a long time since I had the pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure once again to make contact with uh, you and with all my friends in Canada. It was in 2018 uh, when we talked about the Iran's 1988 massacre of the 30,000 political prisoners. You remember that, of course. Of course, but things have uh, dramatically altered mm-hmm. since then. It's very true. Uh, I don't know where to begin because there are so many questions I want to ask you, but uh, let's start with this one. What inspired you to write The Dictatorship and Revolution, Iran, A Contemporary History? It's your new book. It's my new book. And as you know, I've been very much involved with the Iranian opposition for mm-hmm. more than two decades. And I write regular uh, articles for news. Uh, can I just cut you off, Mr. Stevenson? When sure. you say opposition, because a lot of people use this word, I am opposition, we are opposition. Who do you consider as an opposition? I mean uh, the Mujahideen Khalq, the National Council of Resistance of Iran and its uh, president-elect, Mrs. Maryam Rajavi, who is an extraordinary woman and an extraordinary leader of uh, the main democratic opposition movement. And Mm. I've worked very closely with them for more than two decades. And, you know, with the current uprising in Mm. Iran, which began last September with the brutal killing of Masa Amini, mm-hmm. uh, the young Kurdish girl arrested by the, the so-called morality police for not wearing her hijab properly. And then she died in custody. You know, the, the horror of that mm-hmm. uh, set off the uprising, which then really catapulted across the whole of Iran with millions of people taking part. And Unusually, this uprising was not, as in previous occasions, focused on, you know, rising uh, prices, the collapsing real, or, you know, the so-called, you know, moderates trying to bring, you know, some sort of moderate uh, leader to power. This was absolutely focused on regime change. Mm-hmm. From one end of Iran to the other, in towns and cities, you could hear the people chanting, down with the oppressor, no to the mullahs, no to the monarchy, restore democracy, and women, life, freedom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the uprising was led very much by women. And it made me think, you know, now is the time to write a book on the contemporary history of Iran, looking back to the beginning of the 20th century, to the arrival of uh, Riza Khan uh, and the subsequent Pahlavi, you know, Shah, and to examine how that led to the 1979 uh, revolution, which was effectively hijacked by Ayatollah Khomeini and by the mullahs, And they have uh, substituted a brutal uh, monarchy under the the Shah with an even more brutal theocracy, a fascist theocracy. So, you know, the people of Iran have suffered 
tyranny and dictatorship now for far too long. And it occurred to me it was an interesting idea to uh, examine this history, this contemporary history, in a book. So I did a lot of research. How available were materials for your research? There's quite a lot of books. I mean, there's an interesting one called The Last Shah, America, Iran and the Fall of the Pahlavi Dynasty by Ray Taki. And books like that and, you know, other books that I purchased and, you know, read in in depth gave me a lot of uh, interesting background, a lot of which I hadn't been aware of. Give us an example, please. For instance, the fact that uh, Reza Khan the father of the Shah, who the Shah described as one of the most frightening men he'd ever encountered. Riza Khan was an illiterate mercenary working for the Tsar as a Cossack and rose through the ranks of the Cossacks because of he was you know, a renowned bully, a thug, and he rose through the ranks until he ended up commanding the military in Tehran, and subsequently made himself the effective first Shah of Iran. And when it was discovered in the beginning of the Second World War that he was a fan of Adolf Hitler, mm-hmm. the Americans and the British, and indeed at that time the Russians, who were also in Iran, uh, conspired to oust him and to bring his son the Shah Pahlavi to the throne. He then uh, gradually became an autocrat until he ended up uh, commanding a one-party tyranny in the country. Mm. But what, what was more interesting to me was the fact that there was a sort of symbiotic relationship between the Shah and the Mullahs. Mm-hmm. Now, Since the 1979 revolution, the the mullahs have always said, oh, no, we never worked with the Shah. We hated him just as much as all the the other people who overthrew him in the 79 revolution. That, in fact, was untrue. Mm -hmm. There was this strange symbiotic relationship where uh, the Shah required the backing, if you like, of the mullahs so that he could uh, claim his divinity, his divine power. Mm. And the mullahs required the backing of the Shah so that they could claim their power and their wealth. There was this relationship that continued virtually up until the 1979 revolution, when the popular uprising uh, caused the Shah to flee taking with him a considerable amount of the people's wealth. When the Shah died in 1980, his son, Riza Pahlavi, although he had claimed that he was quite happy to leave it up to the people of Iran mm-hmm. if they wished to reinstate the monarchy, he nevertheless, when he was in Egypt in 1980, declared himself uh, the crown prince. Mm-hmm. and said that he was uh, going to be the king and the future Shah of Iran without uh, really seeking the, the backing of the people at all. <laughs> and when all of this uh, became clear to me, and, and you know, I, I wrote uh, a few chapters about the Pahlavis, it then you know, became even more interesting to see during the current uprising, mm-hmm. clearly Riza Pahlavi, who has been living in some opulence in North America for the past 40 years, mm-hmm. never being terribly transparent about where his wealth came from. But uh, he suddenly has sniffed the opportunity of, you know, the perhaps the overthrow of the Mullah's regime, and he has sniffed the opportunity of him reclaiming the throne. Mm-hmm. And after being virtually invisible for the past 40 years, He's now pretending that he's striding across the world stage as a leader of one of the key opposition movements, which is utter nonsense. I was astonished to see that he was invited to the Munich Security Conference two weeks ago in Germany. I mean, the Munich Security Conference, quite rightly, did not invite Vladimir Putin or uh, 
Ayatollah Khamenei, Raisi. or Raisi, you know, but because of the the illegal war that Putin is fighting in Ukraine, and because of the crackdown, the brutal crackdown on the uprising in Iran that has killed 750 people and 30,000 more have been jailed. So, you know, it was quite right that they weren't invited. But when I saw that Reza Pahlavi was invited as the official representative of the Iranian opposition, it was quite unbelievable to me. (laughs) And then I, I saw that outside the hotel where the Munich Security Conference was being held, he even organized a bit of a derisory mm. protest with half a dozen people taking part, one of whom was holding a placard with a picture of Parvez Sabeti, the previous uh, head, the chief of SAVAK, the Shah's brutal security police, who used to execute, torture, murder people uh, not only political prisoners, they used to murder poets, authors, you know, singers. I mean, incredible, brutal Savak security police. And here was one of the Shah's so-called supporters mm-hmm. holding a picture of Parvez Sabeti, who incidentally also fled to America in 1979, along with the Shah, you know, Suggest- and his pictures came out uh, in Los Angeles during the uh, support of the people of the uprising just um, a few weeks ago. I know. So we, we didn't know we, he was even in U.S. I know. Nobody I mean, knew. Now that we know he is there, really the FBI should be arresting him and he should be held to account in the international courts for crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. But. You know, in Farsi, written underneath his picture on that placard Mm -hmm. was the statement, nightmare of future terrorists. In other words, let's bring back Savak under the reinstated monarchy with uh, Riza Pahlavi as king. Let's bring back Savak. Let's bring back Parvis Sabeti. It's almost like saying, let's bring back Heinrich Himmler Mm -hmm. and the the Nazis, you know. it's. Quite incredible. It is. So, you know, I, I was astonished by that. Then I was equally astonished when I uh, discovered in my research for the book that back in 2018, Riza Pahlavi gave an interview to Iran International uh, TV in Washington where he said he was in bilateral contact with the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, the, mm-hmm. the mullahs. Gestapo, if you like. I mean, they are the brutal security people that have killed 750 during the current uprising. They're the ones behind the 33,000 political prisoners who were massacred back in 1988. They're the ones who have been warmongering in Yemen, backing the Houthi rebels, uh, backing Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, backing the a Shia militia in Iraq, uh, you know, and backing uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. They're the brutal face of the Mullah's tyrannical regime. And here we have Riza Shah Pahlavi <laughs> saying... The second. That, yeah, the second, saying that he's been in bilateral contact with them mm-hmm. and he wants to ensure that they can be restored so, you know, he, he certainly wants to bring back the IRGC or a SAVAC equivalent mm-hmm. if he becomes a monarch. You know, all of this is just quite staggering. And it's not surprising when he paid a, a visit last week on the 1st of March to the European Parliament. Mm-hmm. It was quite uh, interesting that the meeting that had been touted as you know a major Mm -hmm. event involving the crown prince of uh, Iran apart from the two MEPs who organized this amazing event only one other MEP member of the (laughs) European Parliament attended the meeting Mm -hmm. it was it was uh, it, it was rather relevant because mm-hmm. it shows that uh, there is no appetite for this guy. He has been totally invisible for 40 years. The people of Iran 
don't want another monarchy. They don't want any more oppression by either the mullahs or any monarch. And I, you know, wrote on the cover of my book the slogan that has been chanted in all over Iran during the uprising. Down with the oppressor, be it the Shah or the Supreme Leader. So, you know, let's uh, not have uh, the West paying any attention to this guy. He's a fake and the people of Iran certainly don't want him. Exactly. I know that um, and uh, Iranian people know that and they appreciate uh, other people agree with them. You mentioned that uh, the European Parliament didn't invite uh, Khamenei or Raisi. As you know, Khamenei is still on the uh, Interpol list. He cannot leave Iran. If he does, he's going to be arrested. But uh, when they invited Reza Pahlavi or as they call RP, I was surprised as well. But at the same time, I know that there is an appeasement policy. There are forces, there are appeasement policies, there are people who are interested, uh, I don't know, financially, politically, but they want to push this guy. Even though Reza Pahlavi says, I'm a Republican, but he adds right after the word, I am Republican. If people want king, we will talk about it. If it's selective kingdom or, you know, it's nonsense. It's a repetitive nonsense that he talks about. But I want to go back to Reza Pahlavi one more time and his investment, he had heavy investment in the IRGC which are terrorist organizations. They've been recognized as such in U.S. Why the IRGC is not on the list of European Parliament? What is the reason they don't want to do that? And RP is interested in that because he wants, he, you know what he said? He wants a guarantee from people that if the Iranian current Iranian regime falls, IRGC can rule or secure the country. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this uh, Reza Pahlavi is going to be the first person in history that claims to be a crown prince and a Republican. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. It shows uh, just how, you know, off the wall he has become. But you're right. I mean, there has been an appeasement policy by the West for far mm. too long, and it has been pursued uh, dramatically by the Europeans for far too long. However, there are changes happening, and I think because of the brutal crackdown by the IRGC and by the mullahs on the uprising that's still continuing after six months inside Iran, the president of the European Parliament, Roberta Metsola, she has called on the EU to blacklist the IRGC, to list them as a terrorist organization, following what's happened in America. And when her motion was put to a vote by the European Parliament, 598 MEPs voted in favour of blacklisting. Mm -hmm. Only nine voted against. It's actually even more interesting that on the 1st of March, when Riza Pahlavi came to the European Parliament headquarters in Brussels, uh, instead of these nine who voted against blacklisting the uh, IRGC coming to see him, only one of them came. So <laughs> he can't. He can't even get the support of the nine who don't want to blacklist the exactly. IRGC. I even saw many MEPs not only ignored him, as you say, but uh, objected his presence in European Parliament. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean he has questions to answer. If he wants to stride across the the world stage attending meetings like this, he has to answer why is he supporting the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, Mm -hmm. which is a terrorist organization? Mm -hmm. Why has he never said anything about the accelerated activity to uh, produce nuclear weapons that the mullahs uh, are engaged in? Mm. Why is he backing... uh, or his supporters are backing Parvez Sabeti, mm-hmm. the former chief of Sabah. I mean, we need answers to all of these things. He cannot simply pretend that he is in any way a significant character because he's not. He's uh, the son of a brutal dictator and he is a total irrelevance who the people of Iran have no stomach for at all. 
Exactly, and there are more questions, uh, Mr. Stevenson. One is why his supporters are attacking, physically attacking people who are not in support of the monarchy on the streets in Europe in daylight. And another question is why Reza Pahlavi does not condemn capital punishment. He has not said that he condemns capital punishment. I know with the you know, number of people that are being executed now, it has really accelerated as uh, Raisi, the so-called butcher of Tehran, mm-hmm. attempts to frighten the people into acquiescence, into stopping the uprising, into stopping taking to the streets. He has uh, begun executing more and more people, many of whom uh, were executed simply for Uh, exercising their right to protest against Mm -hmm. the brutality of the tyranny of the mullahs. And now we've got this horror story of uh, young girls in in girls' schools being uh, attacked with poison gas Mm -hmm. in towns and cities right across Iran. It started last November, Mm -hmm. but it has uh, become an absolute, almost a, a, a pandemic now with hundreds of kids now in hospital uh, suffering the effects of uh, being poisoned. One young 11-year-old girl has uh, allegedly been killed in the holy city of Qom by this poison gas. And we have lots of evidence of schoolgirls saying that they smell, it's got a, a smell of tangerines and rotten fish and then then they become nauseous, they become dizzy, they become fatigued, and many of them end in hospital uh, having to have oxygen to help them recover. And some of them are still ill weeks later. So, you know, this... It's, it's, really, it's unprecedented in the world. It has never happened. I know, but it's there's the no, no question. Khamenei has finally broken his silence mm-hmm. in, in the last day or two, having said nothing since last November when the first mm-hmm. cases of this uh, took place. He has finally broken his silence. I think he's in panic now that mm-hmm. he may, uh, you know, have offended, you know, the, the human rights worldwide by this activity. And he is now claiming that this is a terrible crime mm-hmm. and that the perpetrators must be brought to justice and, you know, other people... Amongst, what do you think he means by that, Mr. Stevenson? Well, you know, there are other uh, leaders of the mullahs who are claiming that it's uh, internal op- opponents of the regime, in other words, the MEK, the Mujahideen mm-hmm. or that it's foreign interference that's causing all this. Others have said it's simply hysterical young girls that are making it all up and it's all a lie. In fact, it's quite clear that the IRGC and their thuggish militia, the Basij, Mm -hmm. they have uh, decided that it was not acceptable in a misogynist regime, you know, led primarily by elderly bearded misogynists. It's not acceptable that these young girls, these schoolgirls, dared to tear off their veils and to join the protest, to go on strike, to march outside their schools. From November onwards, at the beginning of the uprising, and it was these young girls, these brave, courageous girls, and you know, even primary school as well as secondary school pupils who took to the streets in support of the uprising. And I think the IRGC and the Basij have decided to teach them a lesson. And this is their uh, version of payback. Mm -hmm. And really, there is going to be a grand accounting for all of this. The abuse of uh, human rights, the crimes against humanity that this regime is responsible for. Many of the leaders, Khamenei, Raisi, uh, Zarif, Rouhani, all of them have to be held to account and brought before the international courts, indicted for crimes against humanity.
And we will see this one day, I'm sure of that. Uh, Mr. Senator, you mentioned about the wish of Iranian people not to go back to monarchy. Can you give me a tangible reason why Iranians don't want to go back to monarchy? Because under the um, under the Shah, mm. they suffered uh, horrible brutality with the implementation of the Savak and the uh, torture and execution that Savak was responsible for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was because Savak and the Shah had effectively either executed or imprisoned most of the uh, key opposition figures prior to the 1979 revolution, that when the Shah finally fled in 1979, it allowed Khomeini to uh, hijack the revolution because, you know, all the key opponents had either been executed by the Shah or were in prison. They had simply uh, never had a chance to organize. And that's why uh, Khomeini came in from Paris, where he'd been in exile, was met by millions of people thinking, oh, this is a religious figure. He's not going to get involved in politics. Well, how wrong could they be? He turned out to be a psychopath, mm-hmm. as as we discovered from his fatwa that led to the massacre of, you know, over 30,000 political prisoners in 1988, most mm-hmm. of whom were supporters of the MEK uh, PMOI. Exactly. But you know, uh, Mr. Stevenson, there is an argument here that they say because the Shah's time, economically, it was better uh, than now. Human rights was better than now. So they make this an excuse to go back to Shah's era. How do you answer that? Well, human rights wasn't better than now at all. That's why the entire population of Iran rose up in fury and kicked the Shah out. And there's no way after a revolution of that magnitude that the people, even the elderly people now that took part in that revolution and who can recall uh, why they took part in it, there is no way that they want uh, the the Shah back. Mm -hmm. And there is no way that the young people now and the demography of Iran, it has an extremely young uh, population. Uh, you know, more than 40% of the 80 million population are under the age of 30. Uh, they no way want another uh, tyrannical monarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want a secular democracy. They want, you know, human rights, women's rights, an end to the death penalty, an end to the uh, nuclear threat an end to the warmongering in the Middle East, and they want an end to the sponsorship of terrorism that this regime has been responsible for. So, you know, there is no way that uh, the people of Iran would ever restore the monarchy, and there is no way that they want to continue with this current brutal regime. Mm. I don't know if you remember the revolution in 1979. I'm sure you've heard of it. But for me, I was just nine years old when revolution happened. And before that, I knew Savak. I mean, it's incredible that seven-year-old knows how frightened the Savak is. The first idiom, the Persian idiom I learned was the wall has mice, the mice has ears. Yeah. People say this all the time, that you should not talk loud, you should not talk to people about politics because of Savak. And it was horrendous for me. I I even think about it today, it makes me shake. It's just so incredible. Yeah, I've written about this in my book, actually. Uh, Mm. And that, again, is the reason why there is no appetite for restoring the monarchy. And clearly, uh, Riza Shah Pahlavi wants to restore Savak and wants to replace Savak effectively with the IRGC, mm-hmm. who are, you know, horrific and a terrorist organization in their own right. The reason the economic situation is worse is because the IRGC control virtually the whole economy. Uh, they pay no tax. They have enriched themselves with corruption. They are involved in the building of the nuclear weapons. They're involved in supplying 
the Houthi rebels uh, in Yemen and uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas, you know, Bashar al-Assad, and now even supplying kamikaze drones to Vladimir Putin. That's where the people's money has gone, and that's why the economy has collapsed under the, the mullahs and the IRGC. That's true. And also, there are pictures coming out in social media, Mr. Simonson, uh, showing Reza Pahlavi and his other friends talking and shoulder to shoulder laughing with the elements of the Iranian regime, which is, this is incredible as well. And I don't know, I, I'm as an Iranian, I know Iran will not go back to monarchy, but there are outside influences that they want to misguide this revolution just like they did in 1979. And actually, the mullahs have recognized how unpopular the Shah is. That's why they are sending plainclothes members of the Basij mm. to take part in some of the protest meetings, pretending that they are shouting slogans for the mm. restoration of the Shah, the restoration of the monarchy. And this is to confuse the protesters, to confuse the demonstrators into thinking that, you know, maybe the uh, Iranian opposition is somehow coordinated with the, the monarchists, which mm -hmm. is completely untrue. But you can see, you know, the ruthless way in which the mullahs are exploiting all of this. In fact, you know, the, uh, the fact that uh, one of uh, Riza Pahlavi's supporters appeared in Munich with that placard with the picture of Parvis Sabeti on it mm -hmm. has been exploited by the mullahs because mm -hmm. they they know that there are millions of people who remember the 1979 revolution and remember like you do Sabah, mm -hmm. yeah uh, who you know would not like to see Parvas Sabeti or Savak or any of his cohorts uh, restored to any kind of power the mullahs are now exploiting that uh, to show that the opposition is somehow engaged with the Shah, with the crown prince, which, mm. which is not true. You mentioned that uh, some part of contemporary history of Iran surprised you. I want to ask you, when you were writing this book, what made you upset or maybe inspired you? Well, what surprised me was what I mentioned earlier about the relationship between the Shah and the Mullahs. Mm -hmm. You know, that to me was astonishing. I always thought that they were arch enemies. Mm -hmm. But when I discovered how closely they had worked together and how the symbiotic relationship had developed, that came to me as a, a great surprise. But it also, you know, was a shock to realize that there had been this attempt at democracy, a, a small window of opportunity for democracy under Mossadegh. Mm -hmm. When I was researching this, I, I was amazed to find that uh, British Petroleum were paying more in tax to the British Treasury than they were paying in license fees to the government of the Shah. Mm -hmm. And when Mossadegh exposed this, and said that the exploitation of the oil wealth of the people by BP and by the Americans and by the British was, you know, stealing the wealth of the people of Iran. And that's why he was calling for the nationalization of the oil companies. Mm -hmm. And that led to the huge dispute between him and the Shah. And in due course, the Shah was forced to flee from Tehran, and then he was reinstated in quick time by the CIA, by the Americans, and by the British. And after his reinstatement, Mossadegh was charged with treason, arrested, and uh, imprisoned. You know, it's no wonder that Mossadegh has become one of the great heroes of uh, Iranian contemporary history, because that was the one attempt at democracy, which thanks to the CIA, thanks to the Americans and thanks to the British was completely overturned. And in fact, you know, the Americans and the British have a lot to answer to. It was them who put the Shah, the son of Riza Khan on the throne. It was them, the CIA in particular, 
who helped the Shah set up Savak, advised mm-hmm. them how it should be created. And, you know, it was them who then stood aside in 1979 and allowed uh, Ayatollah uh, Ruhollah Khomeini to seize control after the revolution. So, you know, the West has a lot to answer for and their attempts at appeasement ever since have really been uh, a failure. The failure of the very deeply flawed JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action introduced in 2015 by Obama and deeply flawed right from the word go. I don't agree with much of what uh, President Trump did, but his policy on Iran was absolutely correct. His recognition that the JCPOA nuclear deal was a complete failure and his unilateral withdrawal of America from that failed policy was the right thing to do. And it's appalling that, you know, the EU and Britain in in particular have tried ever since to restore the nuclear deal. I think only now, after you know, years of failed attempts at its restoration with the mullahs demanding the complete lifting of sanctions before they were prepared to uh, sit down and, and discuss a renegotiation of the JCPOA. I mean, it's only now with the brittle crackdown and the current uprising that the EU have finally woken up and realised that the JCPOA is no longer an option. And in any case, the Mullahs used the JCPOA as cover for an accelerated program to develop a nuclear weapon. A part of, I, I read every page of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action when it was first unveiled. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed to see that the International Atomic Energy Authority inspectors were never to be allowed onto any bases that were controlled by the IRGC. They were only to inspect uh, bases out with the control of the IRGC. Now, virtually all of the nuclear establishments were under control by the IRGC. And, you know, the inspectors from the uh, IAEA were not allowed to enter them or to go and see what was going on there. Many of them in deep underground facilities in tunnels, you know, bored into the side of uh, mountains in Iran. Now the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Authority, say that 27 of their surveillance cameras have been removed by the mullahs to, to prevent them seeing what's going on. So the whole nuclear deal that Obama thought was, you know, the, his great uh, footnote in history, his great breakthrough. It was a fake from the start. The Mullahs really used it, exploited it as cover for developing nuclear weapons. And we, we now understand that they have uh, developed uranium now within a hair's breadth of weapons purity. Just like his red line in Syria, if you remember, Mr. Stevenson. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, it's the the exact same situation. The Mm -hmm. trouble is the high representative for uh, foreign affairs and security in the EU, Joseph Borrell, he was made as coordinator for the restoration of the JCPOA. And he has been the, the chief appeaser on behalf of the EU. He's a a former socialist foreign minister from Spain. You know, when he was appointed as a high representative, the senior diplomat in the EU, the very first place he visited outside of the EU within two days of his appointment was Tehran. He went straight over to see the mullahs and to uh, pay his respects to, uh, at that time, to Rouhani, And he has been desperately trying to reinstate the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, ever since. Mm -hmm. When a so-called diplomat from the Iranian embassy in Vienna was arrested by the police in Europe who had filmed him handing over a professionally made bomb that he had transported 
in his diplomatic pouch on a commercial airliner from Tehran to Vienna and then drove to Luxembourg and handed it over to three co-conspirators with instructions how to detonate it at a huge rally of the mostly National Council of Resistance of Iran mm -hmm. and the MEK supporters outside Paris in June 2018 at a, a huge rally that I attended mm -hmm. al along with many prominent American, Canadian, EU, British politicians. And that bomb, had it uh, gone off, could have killed and maimed hundreds, mm -hmm. including women and children. When Asadullah Asadi, the so-called diplomat, was uh, jailed for 20 years as a terrorist, believe it or not, Joseph Burrell, the high representative, Europe's senior diplomat, said nothing. He said absolutely nothing. And recently we've even had the Belgian government trying to sign a treaty with Iran that would allow a prisoner exchange mm. so that Asadullah Asadi, who tried to, you know, a terrorist who tried to kill hundreds in European soil, could be sent back to Iran as a hero mm. in exchange for hostages that have been kidnapped, people from Belgium that have been kidnapped by the, the Mullah's regime. You know, you cannot, you cannot do deals with uh, a dirty, murderous terrorist regime like this. And again and again, I've said the time has come when the Europeans and the Americans should close our embassies in Tehran, withdraw our ambassadors, and then close all of the Iranian embassies in our countries in the West, expel their ambassadors, tell them that we are not prepared to allow them to continue using embassies as bomb factories and terror cells and get rid of all their diplomats and their agents who are all involved in the international terror operation that the mullahs have spread around the world. True. Thank goodness we have NCRI and MEK to expose these. Imagine if we didn't have this opposition, what would have happened to Iran? I know you understand that Mrs. Maryam Rajavi is one of the most uh, incredible world leaders, really. She but, is, yeah, she is. And she, she has been invited repeatedly to the European Parliament, to mm. many different countries. It's time she was invited to the UK. I don't know why the British government is still trying to put barriers in the way of inviting her to come and address the joint houses of parliament, the House of Lords and the House of Commons, because they would see what absolutely marvelous leader she would make. And her 10 point plan to restore justice, freedom, human rights, women's rights to a, a secular democracy in Iran, and then to call free elections to allow the people to have the, the freedom to elect who they want to rule, who they want in a secular democracy as a, a government. This is the kind of leadership. Her manifesto is something that myself, as, as a conservative politician, I'd be happy to sign up to. And when I hear all the rubbish, the propaganda, the demonization that is constantly spewing out from Khamenei and Raisi and the Mullahs, calling the uh, MEK, I mean, unbelievably, they call it a Marxist organization. <laughs> well, I can tell you... Shaw called them Marxists as well. Well, you know, there are an awful lot of conservatives like me, leading conservatives from around the world and leading labor, liberal people of every political faction and denomination uh, backing Mrs. Rajavi, the MEK and the NCRI. And believe me, we wouldn't be doing that if this was a Marxist organization or an evil cult, as the Mullahs constantly try to label the MEK. Mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, Mr. Stevenson, there was a, a path that was going really well. I mean, the European Parliament had resolution to blacklist IRGC, and there were talk of stopping the negotiation for the nuclear nuclear program with the Iranian regime. But ever since uh, Reza Pahlavi came out with the support of these television, Iranian television, of course, they made them so big. But not only the listing of the IRGC stopped, the other stuff that was supposed to happen, they all stopped. And the negotiation is, uh, they are saying that it's going to go ahead. Am I right? No, I don't think actually that the listing Mm -hmm. of the IRGC has stopped. Mm -hmm. I think uh, with Roberta Mazzola, the president of the European Parliament, calling for it, I think now the European Commission and the European Council, who represent all of the 27 member states of Europe, I think they are paying very serious attention to this. I think in quite a short time, you may see that the IRGC will be uh, added as a terrorist organization in Europe. I know from my own discussions with government ministers in the UK that Suella Braverman, who is the Home Secretary, is very much in favour of uh, blacklisting the IRGC. And in fact, in the past, our Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, has also you know, been interested in the idea of blacklisting the IRGC. But I'm told that civil servants in the Foreign Office are advising James Cleverly, oh no, you can't do that because the IRGC is an integral part of the Iranian government and you cannot blacklist as a terrorist organization part of a government. Well, I'm sorry, you know, America did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, America did it successfully. I don't see why Britain and the EU can't follow suit. The same argument is in Canada as well, Mr. Stevenson. Even though the parliament unanimously voted for blacklist and IRGC, our uh, prime minister refuses to do so. And they just bring excuses after excuses that we don't have such a lot to do that. But it's just, uh, as the English people say, it's rubbish, I think. Well, I think it is just an excuse. And I think, actually, if uh, I'm right and you do see the EU blacklisting the IRGC, I think the UK will follow suit very quickly after that. Mm. And then you may see some movement in Canada. I hope so. Inshallah. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Let's just go back to your book one more time. I have a last question. It's about your cover. Who decided the cover should be black and is there any significance? We were using a black cover to highlight the graffiti that you can see on the cover picture of one of the protesters writing down with the oppressor, be it the Shah or the leader, in white paint on a a black brick wall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea of that was to try to demonstrate that we have a, a very black period of history that has gone on literally since the beginning of the 20th century right up to the present day through Riza Khan, then through his son, the Shah, and now with the Mullahs since the 1979 revolution. It has been a black history. And the name of my book, Dictatorship and Revolution, Iran, a Contemporary History, is to signify that this black history can end with the current uprising, which is moving very quickly towards being a full-scale revolution. I think it's worth remembering that the 1979 revolution took over a year to be fulfilled. It started back in 1978. People shouldn't be bemused into thinking that it was an overnight affair, that millions took to the streets and the Shah fled. It took over a year for the revolution to be fulfilled with the the fleeing of the Shah. Now we have six months of the current uprising. People are still taken to the streets. Courageous youths are still firebombing Basij and IRGC headquarters and bases. So there is still activity going on. The people are now even more outraged, not only at the jailing of 30,000 protesters, and the killing of 750, but now the poison gas attacks on schoolgirls. And, you know, all of this is 
adding fuel to the fire of the current uprising. And I think it's only a matter of months now until you see this regime completely overthrown and replaced with a secular democracy. Is this your vision for Iran's future? It really is. It's mm -hmm. my absolute vision. I want to, while I, I still have breath in my body, I want to be able to march through Iran with fellow Democrats, men and women, particularly the women who have led this uprising, who have given their lives to see a democracy restored and freedom and justice restored in Iran. I want to you know, be arm in arm with them marching through the free streets of Tehran before I die. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Stevenson, to finding the time uh, to talk to me and very useful information you shared with us. I hope too that you come to our country one day very soon and I can talk to you in a free Iran. Inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> Thank you. Have, you're welcome. Have a great day. You too. This is my right, a right given by